Wonderful. Okay, so uh, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Uh, today I am here with David Miller, who is a researcher and writer, uh, founder of Spinwatch, was fired by the University of Bristol, and is currently the producer of Palestine Declassified at Press TV. Uh, David, welcome to the show. So um, why don't you start by maybe telling people why you got fired from the University of Bristol? So I, I'm uh, a researcher who has done research on propaganda, lobbying, um, power in politics for uh, a few decades now. Uh, and uh, in 2018, I got a job at the University of Bristol as professor of political sociology. Uh, and in 2019, I was doing a lecture uh, as part of the course I was given to teach when I arrived there called Harms of the Powerful. Um, on Islamophobia. And one of the things that I have to say about Islamophobia is that, that part of the reason why we have Islamophobia is not just the, the war on terror and the counter-terrorism apparatus, which is the main reason why we have Islamophobia, but there are also social movements uh, who help to uh, promote Islamophobia and take it further. And one of those social movements is the Zionist movement. So the Zionists uh, uh, the Zionist movement is a, an actually existing set of organizations formed around the, the government of Israel, but also involving the World Zionist Organization and others, which is uh, intent on su suggesting that Muslims are in some way backward and uh, engaged in terrorism and all alike uh, and the like. And that, that's the kind of line which the Israeli government and its, uh, its allied uh, intellectuals have been pushing for some couple of decades now, in fact, well, more than a couple of decades, back to the, the mid-80s, actually, the, when they started saying that, uh, that Islamists were the problem or Islamic terrorism was the problem. So I, I pointed out that, that, that um, parts of the Zionist movement are engaged in directly funding Islamophobic groups, uh, which is um, uh, a strange thing we do in sociology, and again, we refer to matters of fact. Uh, this, this is a matter of fact, which, of course, I've been able to, to demonstrate by pointing to references and sources. Uh, and um, as a result of saying that in the lecture, um, uh, some students anonymously approached uh, an Israel lobby group called the Community Security Trust, which claims to be about fighting anti-Semitism in the UK, but which of course, um, as we've come to learn, it, it doesn't want to distinguish between uh, criticism of Israel on the one hand and anti-Semitism or racism against the Jews on the other hand, and so they took a complaint to the university. This led to uh, further complaints from uh, uh, from the head of the the Bristol University Jewish Society and the the um, the president of the the Union of Jewish Students nationally in the UK. Both of both of which are, of course, formerly Zionist organisations. They're signed up to organisations which are part of the Zionist movement and affiliated to the World Zionist Organization. And uh, that, the, that campaign against me lasted for two years. There was an internal examination of whether I had done anything uh, in the least bit anti-Semitic by an external QC. And the QC concluded that there wasn't a single uh, sentence or clause or comma or full stop I'd ever said, which was anti-Semitic. Uh, and so I was cleared. And uh, um, six weeks after I was cleared, I went to a, a meeting uh, a Labour Against the Witch Hunt meeting about the Labour Party and the anti-Semitism, the alleged anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And I referred to the fact that um, there'd been a complaint about me, about me. I said, uh, and I can quote this um, because these are the words etched <laughs> in my memory. I said that I had been complained uh, about by the head of the Bristol GSOC and by the president of the Union of Jewish Students. And that was enough to set all hell loose and that I was targeting students at my own university and this was a disgrace and I must be sacked. Now, of course, all I was doing was factually referring to the fact that I had been complained about by, by these um, particular uh, people who were office bearers in their organizations. And that led to a second uh, uh, examination by QC, which also concluded, you know, big surprise that I wasn't in any way anti-Semitic. But nevertheless, the university decided that wasn't the, the words that I had used that I'd been attacked and complained about, but it was the way I had used the words, which was a, a violation of, of staff rules uh, to be uh, to, to be you know decent in your conduct with uh, with students, etc. Now, of course, I, I would point out that that when I made these comments at the Labour Against the Witch Hunt Zoom meeting, I wasn't at work. I wasn't in my capacity as a professor of sociology. I was there as a researcher and activist, but nevertheless, they decided that I shouldn't be allowed to say those kind of things 
outside of work because they in some way threatened Jewish students, Jewish students on campus who are members of the, the, um, the British JSOC or of the Union of Jewish Students said that they were scared uh, as a result of my comments, my comments being that I had been and as a result of that, they determined I should be sacked. I mean, I, I tell the story like this, people will say, well, that, that can't be true. <laughs> but that, that's what happened. Yeah, I was effectively sacked for using the word attacked in the wrong way. They never said what was the wrong way or how I could have used it, but that's what they said. And uh, as a result, I was sacked and I went through an appeal process and they rejected that. And I'm now in the process of taking the University of Bristol to Industrial Tribunal um, for wrongful dismissal, and that's that's what we are with that. That will ha happen probably sometime next spring to summer. Uh, it takes a long, long time. So that's a, a, that's a September, August two thousand twenty-one. I was sacked. So we're over a year after that now, and we've still got another nearly a year to go before the hearing. I, I'm I'm stunned. I I, I didn't realise the story was this ridiculous. <laughs> that is completely bonkers, man. Like. I don't. I don't know any any other way to describe it as 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 crazy. It what it did, what specifically in the staff rules did did they say that you violated? Was there was there like a specific like clause or phrase that they pointed to? Well, it, it was it was more that uh, Jewish students on campus feel unsafe. That the, the the way I, I expressed the views, I might I must have known they would be controversial. And I must have known that they were, that would cause distress. And then, of course, I, after I made those comments and I was attacked uh, across the internet and uh, by trolls and received threats, etc., I, I, I wrote an article on the Electronic Intifada uh, some days later where I referred to the, the danger that these students who were attacking me, who were members of the Zionist organization, were being used, the danger that they were being used as pawns by the, the state of Israel, which, of course, is, you know, the, uh, I, I believe a genuine danger that students might not know really fully what they're doing. So I was in a way, I was, you know, I, I know no one will see it like this from, from the other side, but in a way I was defending them. I was saying, you know, it might not be the case that these people are, are fully paid up Zionists and know what they're doing. They're only, some of them only quite young. And, uh, you know, maybe it's the case that they're, they're being used by a hostile foreign power, the state of Israel, to pursue its foreign policy objectives. And of course that, that is, I know there is an alignment between the campaigns they were running and the, the foreign policy objectives of the state of Israel, which are to ensure that uh, the, the possibility of criticizing the state of Israel's record in relation to Palestine uh, is, is curtailed and marginalized as much as possible. Yeah, and this, this isn't the first example either in British politics where, where anti-Semitism has been like weaponized. And like, I feel like it, it, it cheapens the, the actual allegation and it's really bad because you know you, we don't want to see that anywhere so it, it's it's really sad to yeah. see that it, it does cheapen out the, the allegation i mean the thing that the thing is right i mean the, the, i i i there's things that i will say in debate based on my research which um people quite often will shy away from and that's one of the reasons i've been targeted now you know the 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 idea that there is a a worldwide a problem of rising anti-Semitism against Jewish people around the world is an idea which is false. It's an idea which is being promoted by the state of Israel uh, um, as part of its foreign affairs and foreign policy strategies. Now, I don't say that because I uh, have divined that that's the case. I say that because I've looked at their uh, their activities over the last 20, 20 years and uh, found the evidence for it. They, they had a thing which they set up in 2000 called the Global Forum for Combating Anti-Semitism. And that's the place where they've worked on the strategy to try and blur together anti-Zionism, that is, uh, um, uh, a critique of Zionism uh, in Palestine as being a racist ideology, which is engaged in ethnic cleansing and, and settler colonialism. And they wanted to blur that together with anti-Semitism, which, you know, which is racism against the Jews. Now, I, I've, been, I've been able to say, well, actually, this is a, this is a well-worn strategy. And the people who are saying these things about me, and indeed about Jeremy Corbyn or uh, anybody else uh, who's been attacked for anti-Semitism, that, that's, that's an instantiation of this strategy which the state of Israel has been uh, um, uh, uh, pursuing. Now, but I've also been willing to say that actually, you know, it, 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 I mean, one of the, the, the lecture I was giving when I was, um, when I was uh, complained about was about Islamophobia. Now, I, 
I've written a lot about Islamophobia, and you know, I like to think I know a bit about a bit about it. And I've this book's and articles, and they, they provide evidence of the arguments we're making. And so, one of the things we've been saying uh, about Islamophobia is that actually the main form of racism in this country, and indeed in the US and in in France and also Germany uh, and other Western states, since 9/11 has been Islamophobia. It's, it's very evident from, the, from all the data which is given out by the police, by the intelligence agencies, by civil liberties organisations and human rights organisations, is that Muslims are targeted day and daily on the streets, at ports, when they leave the country, when they come back into the country. They are targeted at schools. Kids as young as three are brought into the counterterrorism programme. They're interrogated at schools sometimes, nurseries and schools, sometimes without their parents being present because the prevent policy allows that to happen extraordinary. And people don't really know that enough. And, you know, and so there's been a massive targeting of, of Muslims in the last 20 years. Now, there is no massive targeting of Jews. There is no ge- general targeting of Jews. There is no real significant problem of anti-Semitism in the society. There is some anti-Semitism, uh, mostly associated with the traditional places you'd expect it to come from, which is the far right. But there is no left anti-Semitism. There is no Muslim anti-Semitism. These are ideas dreamt up by the state of Israel over the last 20 years as part of its campaign to try and marginalise critics of its uh, its appalling and racist uh, policies. You know, as we speak, the state of Israel is engaged in policies which are resulting in further colonisation of Palestinian land, further ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. People, people will have seen the, the, the footage, the horrific footage that you see from Palestine of Palestinians being forced to demolish their own homes at the point of a gun from the IDF. I mean, this is extraordinary, but we're not allowed to say anything about that because we are being accused of anti-Semitism. This is not a form a form of racism which is rife in the society. Islamophobia is. I want to, I, I want to come back to the, the Islamophobia um, part in a second, but th- this is a question I ask a lot of people and I don't think I've ever really got a straight answer to it. It's like, why do you think it is that the state of Israel and, and these lobbies are, are so powerful that that they they are almost unable to be criticized like what is it that that makes that that so like why is it so powerful as, a, as an accusation and why are they so able to 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 have things happen like like get your you know have you fired because of so the most innocuous it's powerful, as an, it's powerful as an accusation uh um, largely because of the 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 Holocaust, the the attempt by the German National Socialists and let's not not forget this, their allies in the Ukrainian nationalists to try and eliminate all of the Jews, uh, and of course they tried to eliminate the Gypsies and the Slavs and and the Poles etc. As well, I mean, let's remember that, you know, strangely enough, as the, in, in relation to the Ukrainian, you know, the, the the Ukrainian nationalists wanted to eliminate Poles as well as the Slavs and uh, and the Jews and the Gypsies. So yeah, I mean, the, the, it's powerful because. In the West, there is a stain uh, on on the Western conscience of the attempted elimination of the Jews, which happened in Western Europe. It didn't happen in Africa or Asia. It happened in Western Europe, and, and there's a good re- that's a, there's a good reason for that, uh, and there's a bad reason for that. One, the bad reason, of course, is that we don't remember the, the similar kinds of uh, attempts at genocide uh, con- committed by the Western powers in their colonial possessions in Africa, for example. But the good reason is that, you know, yes, there was, you know, the, the Germans were trying to eliminate the Jews and that was a vile genocide. And we should remember that. But, but you know, that in, in no way justifies the crimes of the Israeli state uh, and of the Zionist movement in colonizing Palestine. So that's the reason it's got strength. And they've, of course, worked on that uh, uh, over the years. But how, how do they do it? Well, they, they do it by being organized. Um, it's, not, it's not that they that this, the state of Israel um, sends people who are working for the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs abroad and they run all of this, it's much more significant than that. There's, there's something called the Zionist movement. And this is the, the thing. I mean, the, the, the state of Israel was created by a transnational movement started formally in 1892 called the Zionist movement, headed by the World Zionist Organization. And there are other uh, bodies uh, surrounding it which are known in Israel as the national institutions, the Jewish Agency, the Jewish National Fund, and Kevin Hazard. Now, each of them has uh, big lobby uh, groups of members in, in each of the Western countries where there is a large uh, Jewish and uh, Zionist population. So in the UK, for example, 
the Jewish National Fund UK has a as a UK branch. The Jewish Agency has a, a an office in London, uh, and the United Jewish Israel Appeal, which is the biggest pro-Israel fundraiser, people probably won't have heard of that, uh, is the UK branch of the of Keren Hazor, the the Foundation Fund, which uh, raised money to create the State of Israel. Now, that's unusual. There isn't a transnational movement which led to the creation of the Chinese state or of the Russian state or you know or I mean, even of the of the American state, that those happen in quite different ways. And people say, well, what about the Palestinian lobby? Well, it, there is a Palestinian lobby. There are people in the movement uh, um, in relation to Fatah and Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and who are uh, who exist around the world. And they are transnational, but the the scale and scope of their activities is so much smaller. Uh, and that's partly because of the way in which um, the Jews in, in Western Europe uh, have been part of the social structure in this country. If you look at the the, uh, the data from the uh, uh, Equalities and Human Rights Commission, for example, um, which it shows that, um, that in terms of social structure, that, that Muslims are right at the bottom of the social structure and Jews are right at the top. Uh, and, and that's in terms of, of income, of, of education, uh, and various other social indicators. So part of the reason for that is that, that, that the, the Jews in this country, uh, many of whom are Zionists, not all, because there are many anti-Zionist Jews who are comrades of, uh, in, in the struggle for Palestinian rights. But the, but the, 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 the ones at the top of the, the, the hierarchy, mostly Zionists, are the ones who are able to fund the, these activities and to make sure that they coordinate each, uh, with, with each other uh, um, uh, in a sort of, a, well, quite, quite a disciplined fashion. And they coordinate, of course, with, with the, the government of Israel. That's how, that's how it works. Other lobbies, if they did the same thing, could be as successful. They're well organized with their with their messaging, basically. Then, well organized with their messaging and their their ability to 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 act in the society. So, I mean, people don't understand that the Zionist movement in, for example, the UK, that there are hundreds of Zionist organizations here. I mean, hundreds. So, there are organizations ranging from uh, organizations which uh, are youth groups and children's groups, so that they work in schools. There are actually schools in the UK which are which openly refer to themselves as being Zionist schools. Now, they're Jewish schools, but they also say that they're Zionist. Now, that is kind of quite unusual. There are Muslim schools in this country, but I'm not aware of any Muslim school which would refer to itself as being Salafist or Wahhabi or, or in favour of the, the, the Saudi regime or the of any of the other uh, oligarchies and, uh, and uh, dictatorships in the, in the Middle East. This, there are, as far as I'm aware, there are no such schools. But nevertheless, there are in the UK schools which openly advertise themselves as being Zionist. I mean, that's extraordinary. I, I came across an example the other day, a school, a primary school uh, in England, which has um, house names for the kids. They have four houses like uh, almost every other primary school. And, and amongst the names of the, of the houses were Herzl, Theodore Herzl, the, the, uh, the writer of uh, the Jewish state, the founder of the Zionist movement, David Ben-Gurion, who led the, the, uh, the ethnic cleansing of, of Palestine, which created the state of Israel, uh, and uh, and Weizmann, one first president. I mean, these are, these are people who, in any other circumstance, would be excoriated as being racists who should have no place in the life of a, of a, of a primary school. I've, I've been thinking about, you know, what what kind of people should there be that Jews could look up to? And of course, you can think of many Jews who've who've made uh, progressive contributions to life, to science, to politics. Uh, uh, who, whose names could be there, but but these people, no, I mean, these these people are racists. That's that's stunning that they had the house name. That, I was just trying to think of like anywhere else that would possibly get away with that kind of like no, glorification of of yeah, murder, mass murder. Yeah. Amazing, it's amazing. But there we are. I mean, it's it's so kind of in, um, embedded in the society that that we haven't really properly understood and noticed it before. I think even in the academic writing on the Israel lobby, I mean, the most famous book on the Israel lobby is a book by um, John Mearsheimer and Stephen Waltz called, called The Israel Lobby, which was published, I don't know, 10 years ago now, and it sort of broke the taboo on discussing the Israel lobby. But even it only really looked at the, the open, obvious Israel lobby groups in the US, mostly, of course, that is APAC, the uh, American Israel Public Affairs Committee. Now. That, of course, is an important Israel lobby group, but it, but, they, but Michelle and Walt's book, for all its strengths, doesn't even talk about the Jewish National Fund 
or the Jewish Agency, these, these national institutions, as they're called in Israel, which have very powerful uh, um, fundraising uh, organizations in the US and indeed in the UK. And these are fu fundamental to the Zionist movement. The, 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 the creation of a whole series of, of, uh, of youth groups, the UGIA I mentioned before, it, it funds a whole range of, of, of Zionist youth groups. Some of them are left-wing and some of them are right-wing, some of them are, are religious Zionist. But, but there are tons of them in the, in the UK. People, people have no conception of that at all. Yeah. Yeah, and well, I guess the, the only thing that, um, the only way you could compare the, the lobbying, or not even the lobbying, but the attitude to, say, um, an Islamic country, say, like Saudi Arabia and uh, Israel, is that they both get away with um, murdering journalists. Could the Saudi yeah, you could say, yeah. So I was just going to say that, yeah, Israel and uh, Saudi Arabia, regardless of uh, race, get away with uh, murdering journalists. So the, uh, the and I, I know Spinwatch actually has done some um, some work on the influence of the, the UAE lobby um, in British politics, which is really interesting. But then yeah. they're still not as effective um, as, yeah, you've mentioned Islamophobia is far, far higher in the UK than it is than um, anti-Semitism. It's weird. I want to actually, um, do you mind if we go back to something you said about you got attacked on Twitter by um, bots and, and trolls and uh, during the, uh, when the, the case with you being dismissed from the university first came out. Do you, do you think that the bots were, uh, was there a lot of bots? Was it uh, like a coordinated sort of pylon? Did you get that idea or that impression? Oh, uh, uh, yeah, I don't I'm not sure if I would use the term bots. I mean, uh, the, there, there's, there are troll factories. I mean, the, the most obvious troll factory uh, in relation to um, uh, Israel-Palestine is, is National Jews, the, the, the Twitter handle National Jew, which sort of manages a, a group of people who are effectively a troll factory. And that coalesces with Labour Against the Witch Hunt, uh, sorry, with Labour Against Anti-Semitism and, and other groups. But of course, you know, that, and these, these organisations, so National Jew, for example, has clear links with the Israel, what was called the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs, which was given the, the job of, uh, of global anti-BDS boycott divestment sanctions campaigning in 2015 and was core and key to the attack on, on Corbyn and any, any other person who would stand up and uh, uh, be supportive of Palestinian rights. So something like Nasha Jew uh, has clear connect, had clear connections to the, the Ministry of Strategic Affairs. They, one of the people involved, a guy called David Collier, had been to the the MSA's uh, conferences in Tel Aviv have uh, been pictured there. Uh, so we, we know that. But then, of course, the, the, the state of Israel itself also has these um, uh, war rooms, which it sort of um, uh, developed during and after the, uh, the terrible pelting they got in their global reputation after the attacks on Gaza in 2009-2014. And they, create, they pioneered this thing called the war room, which would be uh, started actually in universities in, in Israel, but they, they, they got whole rooms of people uh, to work together on social media and they would be fed messages to give out on Instagram or on TikTok or on Twitter and Facebook and they would then go, go ahead and do that. And those war rooms uh, multiplied and there was one set up in London, there was one set up in, in, uh, in um, New York and I think there's actually several now in the US. So they actually have this thing where they bring people together to focus on pushing out um, the state of Israel's latest messages, and it's, and, the, and we know that that I mean in my in my own case there were uh, two examples which we which have been reported on in the electronic intifada of, of them sending out messages to attack me, and that's the case with anyone who who stands up and says anything about the Palestinians which doesn't fit the narrative. So yes, we do know that the, the that the troll factories were were operational, and we do know that they connect directly to the state of Israel uh, and its foreign policy and public relations strategies. These are, these are factual things which we now know about. Uh, and, you know, we, we, there, there's a bit, I mean, I, that's not the only thing which, which moves uh, action in the society. So in my own case, there were many, many complaints to the university. Uh, um, my case was raised in, in Parliament, in the House of Commons and in the House of Lords more than 100 members of parliament and members of the House of Lords wrote publicly to the university 
the, the university was, was pulled up by the regulator, a whole range of things, which were all, all of which were directed, of course, and coordinated by, by the Israel lobby. And we, we tried to fight back against that. We made a video, uh, which uh, uh, I'm quite proud of, really, um, on, the, on the Israel gravy train, where we showed the way in which the, amongst the, the key people who were complaining about me and criticising me, that they'd had significant sums of money directly from the Zionist movement. Uh, which had been declared in Parliament. So you know, we were saying that this is a lobby which is which is pursuing a political agenda and not actually being concerned, not actually concerned about the safety of uh, Jewish students on campus, which was never under threat in any way. It's amazing. I have to check out that video. I haven't seen that. The Israel gravy train. I'll put that in the description for anyone that it's, um, wants it's to check on, it out. Support, supportmiller.org. Supportmiller.org. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll put that in the description for anyone that wants to uh, check it out. Um, but that's stunning that they can just get away with with like, literally directly. I mean, not directly bribing. It's not quid pro quo. But I mean, to have that kind of influence in in the the messaging, it's. I'd want to say it's shocking, but it's not. It's it's really not. Just with the way that that lobbying works in in the United Kingdom. In our politics and in a lot of countries around the world but it, it it's yeah it's a sad state of affairs when you can watch the you can watch the the sort of chinese whispers of information like run its way from like you know central point through like different organizations and then straight into out of the mouths of a politician It's not nice. But then also the these war rooms, I have to check this out as well. This is really interesting. So you said they were uh, set up in 2009 and 2014? Uh, the, the, the first steps were taken after 2009. By 2014, they were set, set up. Uh, I think I think in the first one was in the Interdisciplinary Centre in Herzliya, which is a small settlement named after Theodore Herzl, just um, north of Tel Aviv. And then it spread to all the universities in uh, in Israel, and then out from there out to uh, to other places, including in the UK and in the US. Uh, Asa Stanley has written about this a, a fair bit on Electronic Intifada, and there's actually a there's actually a, a Twitter handle, something like Israel's Troll Army, which leaks material from it regularly, which is uh, uh, enjoyable. But yeah, I mean, the, but then also in addition to this, the, the Troll Armies, they also Created a whole series of new organisations, and this is I'm like, this is before the election of Jeremy Corbyn in 2015 as Labour leader. And so by 2014, um, after the attack on Gaza, then you started to have a whole rash of new pro-Israel organisations in the UK. So in in Scotland, for example, where I'm from, um, they created something like 20 new uh, Friends of Israel organisations, just like that. Uh, and that was a kind of curious thing, it? but we know, now know that those people, those groups were created in part on the impetus from an organization called Stand With Us, uh, which in the UK is funded entirely by its U- US parent and which is used by the uh, Israeli government, as the Israeli government has said publicly, as a sort of force multiplier. So they, you know, the, there was a, a strategy was to put in place as many new pro-Israel organizations as, as, as they, could, they could do it in that period. And so in the UK, for example, you had something like 20 or 30 new pro-Israel organizations set up, including um, the, the, amongst the most famous ones, the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism, which was set up effectively by the Jewish National Fund and funded by the Jewish National Fund, one of the Israel's national institutions. Uh, and then you had other organizations like uh, Labour Against the Witch Hunt, sorry, Labour Against Anti-Semitism, and also, of course, the, the, the Jewish Labour Movement, part of the Labour Party, which is effectively refounded in order to campaign against Corbyn. So by the time Corbyn comes to be um, elected, there is already on the ground an infrastructure which can, can be and was used to attack him as Labour leader. So you, you need these two, two elements to the strategy. One is you create these new organisations who can dig up, compromise and go through people's old Twitter or, or Facebook or, 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 or other stuff, YouTube that's on, on, online. And you need also... Ideologically, you need the, the line, and the line is that these people who are who say they're talking about Palestine are actually anti-Semites, and that that's the language they developed, as I, as I mentioned, at the global campaign, the global com, the global forum for combating anti-Semitism, which uh, started in 2000 and first started having uh, international meetings and 
2007-2008, and they were the ones who pioneered this blurring together of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, and eventually led directly to, uh, you know, after a number of false starts, led directly to the creation of the uh, of the International Holocaust Remembrance Association working definition of anti-Semitism, which is what has been used as the weapon of choice uh, um, throughout this whole period to uh, to smash pro-Palestinian voices. It's first off, it's it's amazing that these these allegations of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party sort of still remain after the Ford report um, sort of vindicated all these suggestions that that it had been weaponized and. It sort of very clearly had been, um, it, like it's well documented now, and uh, the, the allegations remain. Sort of, you know, there was far less coverage of the vindication. Funnily enough, of course not. I mean, I, I think what's interesting about the Ford report, and indeed about the the leaked report, um, uh, which the Ford report was investigating, was the way in which I mean, the leaked report was written by the people who were in charge under Corbyn and under Jenny Formby of the anti-Semitism. Uh, um, complaints. Now, and, and what what that report reveals, event, effectively, is that the people who were in charge were taking forward the anti anti semitism witch hunt against Labour members under Corbyn in order to, to protect Corbyn. I mean, it's crazy. So, so among, amongst the people who were involved, the people who personally wrote the leaked report was a guy called Harry Habel, uh, and uh, there's another guy in there called Patrick Smith. And they, uh, Smith had been a, a former member of the Alliance for Workers' Liberty. Uh, a sort of Trotskyist organization which is pro-Zionist. Uh, and the other guy, Hebel, says, says and he has a long biography of himself in his own report where he says, you know, that he learned all he uh, knew about uh, left-wing anti-Semitism from a book by a guy called Dave Rich. Uh, Dave Rich is, a, is an advisor, works for the Community Security Trust, which is the organization which took the first complaint against me back in 2019, you know, an organization which is, which effectively runs point for the Israeli government and which is, uh, which is a Zionist organization. So that, that, that effectively what's happening was that the, the pro-Corbyn unit inside the leader's office was taking forward the witch hunt and they had, they had effectively been, uh, I mean, I don't know what, what, how, you, how you would put it, but they'd been effectively colonized by the uh, set of ideas which the movement, the, the Zionist movement was trying to impose. And that was, that was that there was a real problem with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, when, as everyone can now see, there wasn't. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's, a crazy, it's a crazy circle of events. It's like they started to believe the, the hype almost themselves. Yeah. And so eventually there was nobody left to defend Jeremy. I mean, they, everyone was taken out. Everybody, you know, it wasn't just that they got rid of Chris Williamson or, or Mark Wadsworth or Jackie Walker. It was like that there was nobody left inside the leader's office to defend him. And, that, and he was the last person left. And then, you know, and now, there he is now suspended, not an MP, not, not a Labour MP anymore. Do you it is do you think that's going to last? If that is that just going to do they is he never going to be you know given the whip back? Do, would he run as an no. independent no. in the next election? No, it, well, I, he won't run as an independent. That's the I mean, I mean you know like that that's the problem in the end. The problem was that the that the le, Labour left uh, in Parliament, Jeremy McDonnell and the rest of them, um, uh, except for those who who were principled, and that's. Who is that? Chris Williamson, more or less. They, they, their belief was that, that we, we have to do what we can to get in a, a Labour government with a Corbyn-like programme, but, the, but we, what we cannot do is repeat the, the experience of 1983, where the, the party split, the creation of the SDP, and we cannot split the party. And actually, you know, you were never going to get anywhere near power with a party which is made up of a, a rump of right-wingers, uh, you know, of centrists, of playwrights, people who didn't think there was anything wrong with killing a million Iraqis. You know, that, that was never going to happen. And actually, if they'd left, they would have got no votes. I mean, they, they would have gone nowhere. And we saw that with, the, with their, their various different splits that they did, where they hurriedly came back to the party once the, uh, the Starmer had taken control. So, you know, there, there was no possibility of that being a, being a problem, really. But the Labour left believed that they couldn't split the party. And that's why they threw so many comrades under the bus. And, that, you know, that's their, that's their record. Mm. Do you think they could split the party? Do you think they could do it now? It, no, not now. They could have done then. They, they had the party. They had the control. They, they could have deselected all these people and they could have put uh, new MPs in. They were in charge. They'd been, he'd been elected twice 
um, but he he's not that sort of politician. That's that's you know as people say he's too nice, mm. and you know, I'm sure that's true. But you know, in the end, if you're going to win in politics, you've got to be able to take effective action. So one of the things I wanted to to, to actually bring up was the you talked about this um, sort of network of like yeah troll groups or like coordinated messaging teams across like Israeli universities. Um, how it was created post Gaza, and I am it sounds like a like a forerunner of the the Russian IRA. Um, that's the Internet Research Agency, not the Irish Republican Army. For people from Northern Ireland who are listening, okay. <laughs> the but the 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 group that were yeah they were pumping out a bunch of um, well both pro Republican and pro Democrat. Um, messaging through 2015 2016 and sort of just stirring stirring the pot a lot online um and it kind of sounds like a forerunner to that maybe like a slightly more like targeted in their exact messaging rather than just trying to create chaos and having done like a lot of research in this area and like spent quite a lot of time um exploring it because of uh my first book that i wrote um brexit the establishment civil war where the where i actually i talk a lot about this kind of kind of like political campaigning and messaging I've never ever seen in a single book that I've ever read and I've read a lot of them on this topic specifically about like internet messaging like warfare like fifth generational warfare never seen this mentioned not once it's stunning to me that that I've never heard this brought up yeah yeah is, is it just no one no one wants to criticize them is that is, do you think that's it well, I mean, there's, there's not that there's, I mean, there's material available. If you look at the Israeli press, right, so the Jerusalem Post uh, and elsewhere, there's, you know, they, these people are there. And uh, the guy in charge of digital diplomacy, there was a digital digital diplomacy uh, unit inside the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. It was actually, you know, for a time, it was actually based in London, in the, the embassy here. Uh, the guy who, who ran it had previously been active in in Paris, you know, doing similar sorts of, sorts of stuff against the left there. So yeah, I mean, these these things are available on the internet if you if you want to research them. We've researched them. We've we've, we've written a book about it, which is not quite finished, but which will be out soon. Where we we, we trace this, you know, and the, these things are eminently traceable mm-hmm. uh, in, in the press, and just people don't want to put put it together. Really, I mean, like, there's a reluctance. But on on the on the Russian thing, I mean. It's never clear to me that, I mean, it seems to me that the Israelis were way more advanced than the Russians were. And that really, uh, you know, the whole idea of Russiagate that, I mean, it's, you know, I haven't read your book, but. Uh, so. Oh, I don't, <laughs> but, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not, I don't mean specifically like Russiagate. There was just, there was like, a, yeah, the troll group where they were just sort of, they weren't like, it wasn't some directed like campaign to, I believe, to, to elect Donald Trump. It was um, oh. some, it was like a group partially funded or like yeah allegedly funded through the russian government just to sort of stir up chaos online like they were they would like organize they would be they ran a lot of the meme groups and then they'd organize like get togethers and they were organizing like like super right wing and super left wing like protests on the same day at the same place just like like little things that it wasn't there wasn't like a lot of money or power or or put into it i don't i don't doubt well, I don't. I, I don't. And also, the, the but there were there were people with power who were involved in that story, mm. uh, and most obviously the Democrats uh, under under Hillary Clinton, and indeed uh, um, our, our own favourite uh, intelligence agency in the UK, MI6, mm-hmm. uh, which is involved uh, in the the creation of the idea that there was a Russia Gate, and of course have been subsequently involved in all sorts of propaganda efforts to, to convince us that the, the that the evil in the world. Is is Putin, and it's, it's not capitalism or imperialism or the, the million dead in Iraq. It's Putin. He's the bad man. So there's this thing um, which the which the, the British government created called the Integrity Initiative, run by a think tank called the Institute for Statecraft, funded to the tune of three million quid by the Foreign Office, and also funded by NATO and uh, other organisations, some involvement from the State Department. And they, they they were there to counter Russian disinformation. And of course, most of what they ended up doing on Twitter was attacking Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> so you, you had this this kind of a, effectively um, an intelligence agency run charity um, defaming 
the leader of the opposition, which of course is is you know quite close, in, at least technically, to to treachery. Um, but that, nevertheless, that's that's what they were doing. It's run by this guy called Chris Donnelly, this this um, charity, who at the time. Uh, this wasn't made by him, but we we found this out at the time. Who was a who was an origins, which is, of course is part of the British military, uh, and and the chief operating officer of this think tank, this charity, which is set up as a think tank, was a guy called Guy Spindler. He was responsible for information security, and he was a career MI6 officer. So <laughs> this is clear, clearly a kind of bizarre sort of spook project, um, um, which which nevertheless didn't manage not to have almost all its records leaked on the internet, which is how we find out quite a lot of the information about them. Uh, and they were, eventually they, they were closed down because, you know, the, the Scottish charity regulator, because they were registered in Scotland for uh, bizarre reasons, this determined that, you you know, that attacking the leader of the opposition isn't really a charitable purpose. You can't, you can't really do that kind of thing. So they had to stop it. So that's, you know, that's one example that we know of. And there have been many others of, the, of their attempts to target critics of British foreign policy in relation to Russia and Ukraine. I mean, the most recent one, of course, is the is the famous Mason Gate emails. Have you come across that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Paul, like, do you do you want to do you want to explain what this is for people who are listening that that aren't this deep into it? Yeah. So so uh, a couple of months ago, some emails were leaked um, from Paul Mason, the left wing journalist who'd been a, sort of a supporter of Corbyn, but then crit- a, a critical supporter of Corbyn, kind of in a way of of Owen Jones and. Uh, these emails were with him and this guy called Amal Khan, who runs this PR firm, which which has been contracting for MI6 in Syria and in Lebanon and other places. Uh, and they were also involved in discussions with this guy called Andy uh, uh, on Proton Mail. And it turned out this guy Andy was a guy called Andy Price, who's a career MI6 officer, still serving in MI6 in the Foreign Office. Uh, and we, we knew he was MI6 because he'd been involved in running the Integrity Initiative, the previous project. He was in charge of this thing called the Counter Disinformation and Media Development Program in the Foreign Office, which is a six MI6 project, which is, you know, if you when you look at if you look at it, if you look it up, if you Google it, you can get the Foreign Office's documents on this program that they're online. And it says, you know, there's different bits of it and coordination of the program is by and it's blanked out. They've redacted the organization which is coordinating this program. And that's because it's MI6. <laughs> so, so, so Mason was, was making all these plans with with uh, Andy Price to 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 do a replacement for the Integrity Initiative, but something that would be more sophisticated, so that we wouldn't find out, we wouldn't we wouldn't work it out. And he was saying, you know, on Ukraine that that he the the people he wanted to go for an attack really were the far left rogue academics uh, on Ukraine who'd been doing stuff on. On Russia and Syria, and now we're doing stuff on Ukraine. And the far left rogue academics, of course, is me, <laughs> and and some of my colleagues who've been working on the, for example, on Syria and propaganda. Who worked on the Skripal case, the alleged poisoning of the the former Soviet spy in Salisbury, uh, and who've been doing work. We've been making public statements about Ukraine. So the, this was a, a left wing journalist plotting directly with an MI six officer how to attack. Uh, what he referred to as rogue left academics, and that's people who have no institutional power at all. I mean, it's extraordinary, and, and that, that's the that's the level at which, uh, uh, which our intelligence services are operating. It's truly scandalous. Yeah, quite, uh, quite. I actually had Paul on this show, um, pooh, a year and a half ago, last last summer, I think. Yeah. Um, after, uh, yeah, I got I got an advanced copy of his book, How to Fight Fa- How to Fight Fascism, um, which. <laughs> It's really funny when he's working with, uh, yeah, working in conjunction with state intelligence agencies in order to silence uh, people speaking out in a way that they don't like. That is quite, yeah, quite, amazing. quite amazing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the irony. But well, I, know, I mean, I, you know, I, mean I, I, I first met Paul uh, on the demonstration against the G8 uh, summit in Glen Eagles in 2005. And, we got in contact then, and later he was instrumental in getting me on Newsnight on with Paxman to criticise the BBC over its coverage of Iraq and to talk about independent media. And so, you know, I mean, we in a way we were comrades, you know. But but now he he's plotting with MI6 to deliberately target me personally and and others who've been doing similar work on propaganda on Syria, on on Ukraine, on Russia, etc. It's extraordinary. What do you think happened? 
I think what happened is Paul has always been, you know, uh, uh, pro NATO, and his, his line was. I mean, I, I didn't realize this at the time, but I remembered that back in 2018, I think I'd written this piece about Russia and misinformation. And uh, I'd quoted something that Paul Mason had written about how, you know, the left should just have radical economic policies and focus on class and shouldn't deal with the foreign policy issues. We should leave the intelligence services alone. Uh, and that, that would be how we would get into power. And of course, that was a you know, moderately influential a tribune, a tributary of ideas into the Corbyn project. But, you know, that, that was already by that stage. I mean, who knows if he was already in touch with Six by then, but he certainly, uh, later on, he certainly was in touch with Six and is effectively an agent uh, of MI6. You know, and I use that term advisedly in the, in, the, in the sense used by MI6 itself on its own website. And you can go and look that up. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think this is, it's a, it's a thing where you, you see, we deal with the class issues. We don't deal with the, with, the, with the international questions. We leave that to the intelligence services. It's too much for us to handle. And it, and that's the way we'll get into power. And of course, when you come to imperial adventures, like, you know, the British role in Iraq, and then subsequently the, the, the Libyan uh, adventure, and then, and then after that, the, the, the Syria, the attempt to, to regime change in Syria, where they got up to all sorts of stuff, which is still not really properly come out into the public domain. And then you go, you're on to, to Russia and Ukraine, where, you know, I mean, we're now starting to see a little bit more critical coverage of the Ukraine conflict and the, and the stuff that's been in the press recently about Boris Johnson flying out to meet Zelensky to, to tell him he wasn't going to be surrendering and wasn't going to get involved in the negotiations with the Russians. And of course, you know, there's been a, a really quite extraordinary uh, a deluge of propaganda over the whole Ukraine thing, which is which is perhaps, I think, I mean, I've been looking at this kind of thing for, for decades, but perhaps surpasses what was was done in Iraq. And the, the, I mean, I mean, you know, we're in a position where the pe the people who are pulling the strings of our perception of Ukraine are not, are not only the Ukrainian government and the military, but actually the intelligence services of France, of, of the US, and of the UK too, and you know, trying trying to pretend that this is a viable fight that uh, that we can give Putin a bloody nose that Putin is losing that the sanctions are going to work. I mean, the most extraordinary thing about it really is is the fact that the sanctions immediately within days were uh, were blown back on the West, and they, and everyone can see that now. You know that the sanctions have not hurt Russia in the least. I mean, when they, when when Putin is told you can no longer be part of the SWIFT payment system, he's like, well, okay. We'll do our own one then. You know, I mean, you, you can't sanction the com the country which produces the world's most oil and gas and wheat and uh, agricultural fertilizers through Belarus. I mean, you, you simply can't do that. And you would think that the people who ran the EU, the EU and who are responsible effectively for neoliberalism would understand that. You would think they would, they would understand how capitalism operates, but it, it appears that they know, no, they don't. Yeah, it's when you say. Yeah, so when you say that the strings are being pulled to push a certain narrative and there's been a lot of propaganda about the Ukraine war, like, first off, it's, it's interesting to you, for you to say it's worse than during the Iraq war because, well, like, I wasn't I wasn't old enough to to, to take this in at the time. Um, I would have been oh, nine when, when we invaded Iraq. Um, but so so that's that's interesting that you think it's even even heavier. But like what message um, for people that maybe just, yeah, and, and for myself, actually, like what message is it that you believe is being pushed that that isn't accurate, basically. Well, first of all, that there's actually a, a proper war going on, and that the Ukrainian forces haven't been from you know very very early on on a hiding to nothing, and, not, and obviously going to be defeated. I mean, the, the the Russians aren't messing about here. I mean, they they they're going to win, and the question is only when and how. And the huge amount of weaponry that's been poured in, of course, so quite a lot of that's been siphoned off for the the oligarchs and. Uh, their mates, but uh, you know the huge amount of weaponry which has gone in. We've seen some of it in action. You know, it still that hasn't made any difference, and it won't make any difference. I mean, they, that's that's the, the reality is that the Russians have been taking this slow and steady, and they have had some setbacks. But you know, they they are not going to lose, and uh, and that's and so that's why Zelensky was always months ago now was saying, well, we have to negotiate, and Boris goes and says, no, you know, you can't you can't be doing that. We, we won't let you. So this is a fight by the West, as people have been saying to the last Ukrainian. You know, I mean, that, you know, if we, if we, if we, you know, people say support, we've got to support the Ukrainians. And I say, well, there's two things to say to that. Which, well, which Ukrainians is it you're supporting? Is it the ones in the Donbass? Is it the ones in Mariupol who now will want to be part of uh, Russia? 
no, you don't mean them. And is it the ones who are actually going to go into the meat grinder, the Russian military machine? And that is like, you know, old people being, you know, being uh, press ganged into joining the army. I mean, these people are going to die for nothing. Uh, and that's that's the reality. And, uh, you know, if we support the Ukrainians, we, we shouldn't want either of those things to happen. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the, the conflict has been normally I have a sense of what's of, of like what's going on but it's been it's been so difficult to tell what like the real story is on the ground this is I have zero understanding of who to turn to of of like who I can trust uh, of like what everyone's motivations are especially because of like the obscene amount of international politicians who have very shady links to Ukrainian gas and oil companies <laughs> it's it's like it's like a who's who of, of like the corrupt and powerful. Well, 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 there was another thing, wasn't it? I mean, re remember the whole Hunter Biden laptop story, which was said to be Russian propaganda, and now everyone's like, "Oh, well, actually, that was true." <laughs> yeah, I mean, was, yeah, but but the press don't seem to suffer like reputational like I don't know detriment for this. I, th I think I think the the reason it's worse is because. Um, because a large section of the of the liberals and the left have have got on board with this in a way that they never did in, in Iraq, and uh, and as a result, the, the the alternative information to give an alternative account of what was happening in Iraq was out much more quickly, and you you know you didn't have you, you, I mean the, the the thing about the uh, about Saddam Hussein was that nobody in the left. Uh, um, and in the anti-war movement supports Saddam Hussein, but they were very clear that that this would be a disaster. And of course, it was a disaster. It's an ongoing disaster. Um, but the, that that body of opinion isn't there. They won uh, a key portion of the left and the liberal opinion to, and that's why you see all these Ukrainian flags uh, flying all over the cities up and down this country. And and that, that that's that's why. Uh, there's so little criticism in the in the press. It's only just started to come some moderate criticism. I mean, if you look at the business press, even I mean the stuff in the business press in the last few days about the ineffectiveness of the sanctions and how the all the big banks who predict who predicted these would be fantastically successful sanctions simply got it wrong. And uh, but it, it was plain to see from the beginning that that's what would happen. You know, the, the, Russia is not Iraq. You can't. I mean, they they, they had sanctions on Iraq. For years in the in the run up to the invasion of Iraq, Russia is, Russia is not Cuba. I mean, you can't, you simply can't sanction a country of that size, which has, which is self sufficient in all its markets. It doesn't depend on foreign imports in the way that Western countries do. It's you know what what mistake to make. Yeah, and they're right beside China anyway, um, yeah. and they don't. Yeah, they're they're not, they're not shy with trading with them if they really need something. So well, they uh, they are trading with them, and that, that's where the oil's now going, isn't it? The oil's yeah. going to China, and the Chinese just background. Oh, the small markup here. I yeah. hope you won't mind, mm -hmm. and, that, and, that, and that's why the working class in this country will be will be hit by massive fuel hikes because of the ridiculous policy of the EU and the British uh, and the Americans in relation to Ukraine. You know, we will we'll, we'll be shivering in our homes this winter because the the, the elites that run our country. Had a mad policy in Ukraine. It's nothing to do with, with, with even with Putin's uh, with Putin's alleged evil. It's to do with the, the madness of the people who run our countries. Mm. Yeah, it's frustrating as well because I like so for oil. I know we do, we do rely on Russian oil, but um, gas at least is only like five percent coming from Russia, and yet they still seem to hike the prices up. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the the the, the rule is now, you know, we have to pay rubles or. or well, we're finished. That's yeah. it. Or interestingly, yeah. actually, this is one something actually I want I want to mention when uh, when you were talking about uh, Russia's economy, they are reportedly, uh, according to their own yeah, according to their own Ministry of Finance, uh, going to push for legislation to use cryptocurrencies for international trade. So they're just going to go straight past SWIFT and try a brand new thing, which is absolutely crazy. But I mean. Yeah, I mean, it was, I, it was know, predicted. Like people were predicting this, like as a joke. I mean, <laughs> at, at the big level, I mean, this is this is the this is the end of the U.S. empire. I mean, this is the beginning of multipolarity. And of course, you know, as, as the U.S. empire goes down, they will no doubt cause some horror and some mayhem. But really, this is the end. They they are finished, and they they haven't. I don't think people realize that yet. That this is this is just the end of American power, and that will mean the end of. Of, uh, of Britain as a, as a loyal lapdog to the US, you know, unless we're going to realign ourselves with Iran, China, Venezuela, Cuba, and Russia, which I'm not seeing as a likelihood, mm -hmm. then, you know, the, 
the, the, the prestige that Britain still has will will be gone, uh, and people haven't realised that yet. And that that's you know that's the end for the possibility of of us having some kind of punching above our weight uh, uh, foreign policy and international status. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm really curious as to how long the dollar remains as the yeah the world's reserve currency. That said, I don't know if the if the Chinese yen will uh, will replace it because their economy is about to go off a cliff, reportedly. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> America has just like I don't know. It's almost got this like too big to fail feeling about the dollar, and like and obviously that's not like ex- not really <laughs> the case, but. Uh, I know, just for some reason, it, it, it it's like, I don't know, institutional clout or something that just, like, because the buildings feel eternal and you can stay, you, do, yeah, do you know what I well, mean? It, it has that sort of sense, um, and until something like really, really crazy happens, yeah. which well, we may I, be seeing anyway at the I minute. Would, I, would say two, I would say two things to that. One, one is that the, the pound used to have that feeling about it, and it doesn't anymore. Mm. The second thing is that I just have a bit, when when you were saying that I just had this vision of that that, of that famous footage from 1975 of the last helicopter leaving the the American embassy uh, in South Vietnam, and I mean that's that's it. You know we're we're on, we're on a different trajectory now, and the fact that that the Iranians and the Venezuelans and the Chinese and the Indians and the Brazilians in, in the BRICS law are are going to work together. That means you know that, uh, that America cannot impose its power anymore. It, it's always always dependent on being able to impose its power. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting uh, couple of years. I mean, it's it's gonna be tragic, I think, in the winter, unless they actually do something about this fuel payment. But I mean, I'm skeptical well, that it's gonna be. They will, they will have to do something about it, but uh, but you know, I mean, the th- the key thing is that we have to we have to focus on what what is the reason that people in this country are suffering because of fuel payments is it because of some kind of weird thing that happened with the oil price or is it because of the deliberate decisions taken by our leaders and that you know of course the latter is the case yeah yeah i couldn't believe when i found out that boris johnson had literally flown there to yeah yeah to to say don't surrender and yeah. it seems like it's not even don't surrender but don't negotiate peace because i thought yeah. that's what we all wanted i know maybe not but anyway, uh, David, I've taken up enough of your time. Uh, that seems like a, a nice place to end things. Um, so yeah, uh, thanks very much. Really, really enjoyed the chat. Um, I'll yeah, edit out the little stop gaps. <laughs> <laughs> but and, uh, yeah, is there is there anything you want to point people towards in terms of your work or anything? Well, I would. I, mean, I would just say that I mean, now I'm. I've been. I'm an ex-academic. I've been sacked by the University of Bristol. I know I'm, I'm writing. I've been doing writing for um, the, the Electronic Intifada. I have a weekly column for Al Maidin in Beirut in the English language service, and I produce this program called Palestine Declassified on Press TV, which is the reason why I have uh, Iran state-affiliated media on my personal Twitter account. You know, it's going crazy. And of course, the re- the reason that that happened and that Twitter did that was not because. Uh, anyone who actually do, does any reporting for 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 press TV is automatically labelled this because the Community Security Trust, the organisation I was talking about before, which took the first complaint about, about me, directly complained to Twitter and it's part of this panel for these things. So that they've got it was the, so that so weirdly the Zionists have got to be labelled as being you know, Iran state affiliated media. Now I wanted to say just a few things about that. One is that we we do the show every week. It's it's banned in the UK, but you can see it on Twitter and on social media on the press TV's website itself. It's a half hour program. Chris Williamson, former MP, uh, is the presenter. I'm the producer. I'm a regular guest on it, and and, and we do whatever we want on there. We we produce pr- proposals, and we send them to to Tehran, and they and they say yes, <laughs> and then we get on and do them. So we have much, we have more freedom on this allegedly state controlled broadcasting media than we would have anywhere in the British media. Now I think that's you know that's a that's a genuine point to make. You know, that really, if you want to actually get to the truth you you can you can tell the truth on uh, iran state controlled media uh, and you can't tell the truth on british media that's crazy that said i do know uh, i have interviewed someone from iran on this show who was who fled the country after uh, stating yeah. the wrong things on on university I mean, uh, campuses there are, there, are, there are no doubt problematic things about press tv just as there are with with rt but you know but if you want to know about what's happening in in, in palestine you can't say that in british media yeah, which is which is uh, which is sad. Uh, somewhere that's meant to be uh, one of the the freest places in the world, unfortunately. Yeah. But um, yeah, maybe 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 Liz Truss will turn it all around. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I will put links for for all your stuff in the all description right. below for everyone. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks very much. Pleasure.
Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.